Welcome to Capital Conversations, the ERLC's podcast from Washington, D.C., where we help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the public square. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering, and I am joined once again by Chelsea and Travis. Chelsea, Travis, we had a big week last week. That we did. It's good to be here with you, Jeff. Good to be with you, Jeff. I think I'm recovered after the weekend, but it was a crazy week, no doubt. It was a it was an absolutely crazy week when you think about uh, just uh, beginning the week with one president, ending the week with another president, and all of the all of the things that go into an inauguration, and the personal aspect of which we talked a lot about last week, just living in Washington, D.C., uh, and particularly here on Capitol Hill, still kind of feels like we're living on a military base. We're down to 5,000 National Guardsmen. But the uh, the Capitol complex is still uh, surrounded by fencing with barbed wire on the top. It's weird. It's a it's a weird feeling. But I'm glad that last week, particularly on Wednesdays, ceremonies went off uh, safely and securely. The transfer of power ended up peaceful after a lot of turbulence. But uh, we can all be grateful for that. Um, later on in this show, welcoming to the roundtable for the very first time, our friend and colleague here at the ERLC, Elizabeth Graham, really excited to have her on the show to, to talk about the ERLC's Psalm 139 project and all the ways that the ERLC stands for life, because we've got a very important conference here at the end of the week that Elizabeth is going to tell us more about. Uh, but first, I wanted to talk to uh, both of you about President Biden's first week of executive actions. And there are some actions that happened last week, like the inauguration, like the poem read by Amanda Gorman or Amazing Grace sung by Garth Brooks that united America. There were other actions last week that continued to reflect our divisions, uh, of which some of President Biden's executive actions, I think, did that. But there was one other thing that really united America that I want to begin our conversation with. And those are the Bernie Sanders memes. Senator Sanders arrived to the inauguration wearing mittens, uh, and the photos began rocketing around Twitter, quickly became a wider-than-Twitter internet sensation within within just a few hours of the inauguration. So I want to start off here at the top by asking both of you, what is your favorite Bernie meme? Before answering that question, I I do have to say uh, when the Bernie meme started floating around, my wife didn't recognize who it was, and so a couple hours went by, and she was and she texted, and I feel for her. She texted on a big group text, "Who is that guy?" And boy, <laughs> she got she got roasted. Um, I have two favorites. Uh, the first was an Enneagram-themed uh, uh, Bernie meme that just uh, had him sitting uh, in his chair, and the caption was, Enneagram 8's in a pretty good mood. <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that was a good one. That's that a pretty good one. one. Um, but my other, that. Yeah, oh yeah, big time. Um, I'm not mad, you're mad. Um, <laughs> but uh, the other one uh, that was also floating around uh, was uh, somebody had put Bernie... Uh, right next to our boss, Russell Moore, uh, in a profile that um, Time Magazine ran on him. And it was another just, Bernie always just seems to fit in, no matter where where you stick him. Yeah, yeah. No, it <laughs> Chelsea, seems right. Okay. Chelsea, what about you? I have two as well. Um, I'm a huge Office fan, and there was one 
with Jenna Fisher. Jenna Fisher posted it, but her character on The Office, Pam, was resting her head on Bernie. And I just love that for so many reasons. And then my second favorite, um, Bernie's <laughs> mittens have also been making the rounds. And there was one, um, the the painting from the Sistine Chapel with God's finger and um, Adam <laughs> and the man. It was the mitten and God's finger. And I just... <laughs> I love that one too. Can we put all these in the show? Okay, notes? that can we, can we leave when I yeah oh, yeah let's let's for sure. y'all send me your link so that I can uh, okay. so in case somebody's uh, somebody hasn't seen one of these uh, they can find them. Uh, but I when I saw that one, Chelsea about the Sistine Chapel, I thought okay, we've entered a new stratosphere of of the memification of this moment, and we probably even uh, we've. It, it, it's become so widely shared that all of our parents have also probably seen all these memes because by Wednesday night, there were some, there was some conversation on Twitter about, all right, the countdown begins. I've got four weeks until my mom texts me. Have you seen these Bernie Sanders memes? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so my, my favorite uh, were the memes of him in uh different movie sets uh, or movie scenes where people were sitting uh, in the top of that list, I think is the mean girls cafeteria and Bernie is sitting there uh, <laughs> at the table. Um, but one of my favorite, the one that made me laugh the hardest came out was one of the first ones. Um, and it was just the photo of, of him arriving to the inauguration. So before he even sat down and he's holding what appears to be uh, mail in his hands, and, <laughs> yes, you know, he's that. just wearing a regular old jacket, like a, a, a coat, you know, he's not even uh, dressed uh, to the nines like others uh, usually are on the inauguration stage. And, and it said, Bernie is dressed like the inauguration is just one thing, but it's not his whole day. Uh, and so it said like 1030 a.m. drop off dry cleaning, 11 a.m. Joe's thing, 2 p.m. <laughs> go to the post office. <laughs> I thought that was uh, I thought that was pretty great and probably somewhat accurate uh, for him. But um, that was a good amount of fun. I look forward to asking uh, Elizabeth when she joins us here later on what her favorite meme was. Um, but before we do that, I do want to spend a few minutes talking about uh, President Biden's executive actions. He took a lot. I think it was a record-setting first day uh, with a lot of executive orders. There's a lot we could go into about that, about uh, how frustrating it is that so much of our government seems to just ping pong back and forth with executive orders rather than being dealt with on Capitol Hill in Congress with legislation, uh, as I think we all agree it should be. But nonetheless, we are advocates here in the public square, and so we are responding to and working within uh, the way that the system works right now. So, uh, Chelsea, give us an overview of what happened this week. We, as a policy staff, published an article um, on Thursday titled President Biden's First Week of Executive Actions. Give us an overview of some of the things that happened that are important to ERLC. Jeff, you are exactly right. Uh, President Biden signed 15 executive orders on his first day in office and 19 executive orders in his first week in office, which is is a lot more than his predecessors have done in their first week. And just to kind of highlight some of the ones that the ERLC is tracking, and this week we anticipate that he will roll back um, a repeal of the Mexico City policy uh, later this week. Also during his first week, he um, created a family reunification task force, um, which, as you might remember, 
during President Trump's time in office, there was um, a big, big kerfuffle over family separation at the border. And there are still um, approximately 500 children that have not been reunified with their parents. He issued a Bostock executive order based off of the Bostock Supreme Court case. He repealed what's known as the Muslim ban, um, and he froze government-wide regulations that uh, President Trump had instated as he was leaving office. He just put a freeze on a number of those. So again, very high level. If folks want to go into depth on any of these, we have a great article at our website. Yeah, so let's uh, let's go into a couple. And I want to frame it up with anytime you have 15 executive orders, there are some things that are worthy of praise. And there are others that are uh, that raise concerns for us as they conflict with our public policy convictions um, as the ERLC. So, uh, Travis, I want to start off with some of the positives. What was an action that uh, that the White House took last week that was praiseworthy? Before jumping into that, I I, as we've been just been talking about just the sheer number of executive orders issued and how much policy can change on a single day when a new occupant steps into the White House. I, I've just been thinking a lot about Yuval Levin's uh, chapter on the legislature and the constitutional design um, in his book, Time to Build. And, you know, it's I just think it's it's a sign of how much we've strayed from the constitutional structure uh, that, you know, when when the framers were this and as as uh, Levin points out in his book, as as the when the framers were putting together the Constitution, their big concern was constraining the power of Congress because they could not imagine a scenario where Congress would not uh, seek to uh, expand its its power and influence. And, you know, what what we're seeing right now is the culmination of decades of Congress giving up that authority and handing it over to the executive. And so not only is this bad because it, it means it's that that a good deal of our of our public policy is not durable, uh, but it can, you know, it's it's influenced by the election of literally one person. But it also means that our, our public policy is a little bit less representative. You know, it doesn't go through the same kind of of negotiation that's required for a bill to actually become law. So, you know, I've just I've been thinking a lot about uh, about that book. I think my person, I mean, I think that Yuval Levin is is without a doubt one of the most important public intellectuals of our of our time. But I just I, I, I kind of can't stop thinking about uh, this book, A Time to Build. And I think in some ways it's a it's really a blueprint for us to be thinking about um, as we're as we're trying to ensure that at least, you know, the the during the times that we are members and, and leaders within our own institutions, that we are doing our part to leave uh, to leave things better a little bit better than the way that we found them. But your your question was about um, these executive orders and what are what are some ways that um, we think we might be able to work with the Biden administration. And I, you know the, the the first of those I think is uh, on DACA and a permanent solution for dreamers, which again is is another form of the dysfunction that we were just talking about. DACA exists because Congress failed to get anything done and failed failed to create a solution and and so left it to the executive. Uh, and then Congress had another shot and left it to the to the courts to resolve. Um, so here we are. And I think it's it's important to underscore where we are, which is, you know, now close to 10 years of instability and insecurity for six, seven, eight hundred thousand DACA recipients, um, you know, whose lives have been 
you know, just had a, a tremendous amount of uncertainty injected into their lives in terms of whether they're going to be able to continue working, uh, whether uh, whether they're going to be laid off because they've lost work permits and and so on. So, you know, we we were uh, encouraged to see. Uh, this executive order, which which aims, well, it, it directs the Department of Homeland Security to issue a new memorandum that, which would strengthen uh, the DACA program. But, um, you know, our, our site is set on permanent legislation because we think Congress just has to act here, um, not least of which because there's, there's ongoing litigation that challenges the underlying constitutionality of the DACA program arising out of Texas. And that that's going to be moving forward over the next over the next few weeks, but we just we think that it's time for Congress to act, and so we will be uh, working with our allies on the Hill to try to make that happen. And it's worth noting that the Biden administration uh, this wasn't an executive action, but they did introduce an immigration bill to try to get that moving, which is no, which is. is noteworthy. That I think that was the the first bill. Maybe it was the second uh, COVID relief was I guess the first that they yeah. sent over to the Hill. But uh, of all the different things they could have done. They submitted an immigration bill. Yeah, and and I think, you know, there. I mean, it's it's a the, the bill is, doesn't have a ton of details, and 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 in fact, as of this recording, that the text has not yet been uh, hasn't yet been released. So the bill is not yet introduced. But, you know, I, I think what what we can say is that there is um, pressure for Congress to do something positive um, on this, which is which is not an environment that we've been in the last few years. And so, you know, our our aim is to make the most of that opportunity and try to shape this legislation into something that Southern Baptists and something that conservatives can support. So, you know, I'm sure that there are, you know, when we see the when we see the bill there, you know, there are certainly going to be things in there that we don't like. But again, I mean, our 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 aim is regardless of who is in power uh, to try to advance uh, the issues that um, that that we care about. Right. Chelsea, I want to come to you next because uh, there are plenty of things uh, that happened last week with President Biden's executive orders that don't align with our convictions for public policy. Uh, so talk to us about some of the things that are concerning that we've that we've seen thus far. Absolutely. So again, I outlined several of those, um, the actions that he has already taken last week. But one of the ones that we expect President Biden to take this week is repealing the Mexico City policy um, or rescinding the Mexico City policy. A, a couple of um, kind of cultural things to note. We expect, again, this action this week. This week is also the uh, March for Life. The March for, for Life will be virtual this year due to security and health concerns, but um, just wanted to note the timing of that rescission of the policy. But this policy was created by uh, President Ronald Reagan to prohibit U.S. um, foreign aid to groups that provide or promote abortion overseas. Uh, The Trump administration broadened this policy in, in its current form. It's known as the Protecting Life in Global Health Assistance Policy, or PLEGA, as we have called in D.C., um, too many acronyms. Too many in this acronyms. Town. Way too many acronyms. Um, but this this policy in particular has kind of been a political football for administration. So President um, Clinton rescinded it. Uh, President Bush reinstated this policy, and it has gone back and forth ever since then. So so we expect that action this week, which uh, the URLC has advocated for this life-saving policy. And then another thing that President Biden has indicated is he will disavow the Geneva Consensus Declaration. Now, that does not mean that the great work 
doesn't carry on. Um, it just means the U.S. will not be party to this uh, pro-life commitment any longer. Brazil will serve as the coordinator for this coalition. But the Geneva um, Consensus Declaration was spearheaded by the Trump administration, but it's a commitment um, of a diverse group of countries to advance uh, the health of women, the protection of the family, and affirm the value of life in all stages of development and uphold the sovereign right of nations to make their own laws on abortion or the preservation of life. Um, It basically affirms that there's no universal um, right to abortion. So again, he has indicated he will disavow and remove the United States from this declaration, but the the life-saving work will continue thanks to Brazil um, continuing to spearhead it. So those are two that we expect uh, this week. All right. Chelsea, Travis, um, on behalf of the rest of us at ERLC and our constituents, thanks for all of your hard work last week responding to just uh, really, uh, uh, as we mentioned, a historical number of executive orders on the very first day of a new administration. It was a lot, and uh, the weekend was was well-deserved. And uh, here we are at the start of a new week, start of a new administration, a new Congress, a lot of work to be done. Well, and I'll just say there is more to come. We're we're only a yeah. page and a half through the four page document I have that lays out the the first ten days. So um, yeah, I think it's right. Let's uh, yeah, there's still plenty to do. And we are now joined by our friend and colleague Elizabeth Graham. Elizabeth Graham serves as a Vice President of Operations and Life Initiatives for the ERLC. She provides leadership, guidance, and strategy for life and women's initiatives and provides oversight to other strategic projects as needed here at the ERLC. Additionally, she directs the leadership management and operations for all of the ERLC's events. If you are listening to Capital Conversations after having been at any of our ERLC national conferences or other conferences that we have put on over the years, you, uh, you may not know it, but you have directly benefited from Elizabeth Graham's leadership and work in ministry. Uh, and so we are really excited to have Elizabeth, who we also refer to as EG. So uh, you may hear us direct questions to her as EG uh, throughout our conversation on with us here on Capital Conversations. She is a graduate of the University of Tennessee, as well as the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And she comes to us from Tennessee. Elizabeth, welcome to the Capital Conversations Roundtable for the very first time. Yes. Thank you so much for having me today. It's great to be here with y'all in my very first ever podcast at the ERLC. So thanks. Wow. It's a maiden voyage. (laughs) It sure is. (laughs) Thanks for being with us, EG. That's awesome. I I love that. So we're going to be talking about the Psalm 139 project with you. Uh, But before we get into all of that, I need you to answer the question that we began this podcast with, which is, what is your favorite Bernie Sanders meme from last week? Okay. There's so many good ones. (laughs) There are so many good ones. Actually, one of my very favorite was Charlie Dates Church put Bernie up in the first row of the choir loft with his legs crossed (laughs) and his gloves on. And he's looking down over Charlie while he's uh, preaching the word. And I just was literally crying. I was laughing so hard at that, at that one. Oh my gosh. Um, It just, I love that. Like it was so funny. I mean, I've seen so many good ones. I don't even know how you can pick, but that one really stood out to me. Yeah. Travis mentioned earlier that the thing that makes him so funny is the way he's sitting. Yes. Literally fits anywhere. Yes. Absolutely anywhere. 
Legs crossed, <clears throat> hands crossed, laying on his lap right. with his gloves. <laughs> it's amazing. Right. Right. EG, let's let's jump in here. And one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on uh, this week is because we have a uh, an event later uh, that we're going to talk about later in the podcast happening on Thursday. But it's also because the topic of abortion is is an area of such deep divide in our country. Anytime you have a new administration or uh, the Democratic Party coming into power on Capitol Hill, you have a lot of people in the pro-life movement. And I, I would I would also just say, in general, pro-life voters who feel a sense of uh, grief and frustration that it feels like the movement is halted uh, because of what's happening in Washington, D.C. with our elected officials. And while that's the case for the policy aspects of the pro-life movement, it is not the case for the work of the pro-life movement. And so so we wanted to have you on to give our listeners, because again, the, the purpose of this podcast is to help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the public square. And the Psalm 139 Project is a great example of how the this the work of the pro-life movement goes on regardless of who's in the White House, uh, because there is great work to be done, life-affirming work to be done uh, in every season. Uh, let's begin at the top. Tell us about the Psalm 139 Project. How did it get started, and what is it today? Well, thanks so much for that question. I'm so excited just to be here to talk about the incredible work of Psalm 139. So I think it's just important to remind our listeners that the ERLC is, is dedicated to protecting life in all stages of development, not just one particular stage. But in this case, we're going to focus on the work of Psalm 139, and it focuses on those in the womb. From our first placement, which happened in 2004, our goal of the initiative is to make people aware of the life-saving potential of ultrasound technology in crisis pregnancy situations and to help pregnancy centers minister to abortion-vulnerable, or as some of our other partners would say, abortion-determined women by providing ultrasound equipment for those centers to use. This project provides a way for individuals to assist financially in the placement of ultrasound machines in qualified pregnancy centers. It's about standing for life by working to save the lives of the preborn. We're currently working on placing about 10 machines in the first six months of this year. And then our goal is to place 50 machines by what we're calling Row 50, which marks the 50th anniversary of the tragic Roe v. Wade decision, which will incur in January of 2023. Just to give you kind of an idea of what that looks like for us, that's about 10 times the number of machines placed in a normal year. But what's incredible about this is we have some very generous donations that has allowed the expansion of our pro-life work. So we're really excited to serve more vulnerable women through these amazing centers. And just to give you kind of an idea, Jeff, about some of the placements that I've been able to witness, which really has been very impactful for me, is so we were able to do a couple of years ago, we partnered with some friends of ours, Benjamin and Kirsten Watson, and we were able to do a placement in New Orleans down in the Ninth Ward. There's a Baptist health clinic that serves underprivileged community and they offer full health services, but also they have a PRC that works within that clinic. 
And Benjamin and Kirsten uh, partnered with us and provided all of the funds that we needed to place an ultrasound machine. So 100% of the proceeds that are given to Psalm 139 go towards this life-saving technology, the purchase of the machines, and or the training of those machines. So Benjamin and Kirsten were able to partner with us. We also did a placement, a mobile unit, um, a couple of years ago in St. Louis as well that has had a phenomenal impact. And if you're familiar with Thrive and the work that they're doing uh, in Missouri, it's absolutely phenomenal uh, as it relates to um, uh, baby saving and ministering to uh, vulnerable moms. So I think that's just a couple of um, things, but I want to read to you the story that I actually just received this week. And I think it's worth sharing with our listeners just so that they can hear about the impact. Yeah. Sure, because too often these kind of stories come, you know, to us and people don't get to see the great results of the work that they're involved in. So, yeah, please do share. So we call this like one of our stories of life. So the center that we have placed a machine at not too long ago um, sent the story over. They said, we're incredibly grateful to the ERLC and their dream to assist centers in these life-giving machines. Last week, We had a young woman come into our admin center with her daughter. She said, I just had to come in, come back, and to tell you thank you for the life of my precious daughter. When I came to you, I was determined to get an abortion, but I agreed to see the ultrasound. Then I heard her heartbeat, saw her fingers and her toes. Just like that, I knew I could not end her life. That ultrasound is the reason that she's alive today. This is the incredible turnaround that these miracle machines accomplish. And the center just wanted to say thank you so much for providing that machine. I'm so glad you shared that story because I think it helps. So often we can talk in concepts and it helps make those concepts real when there's an actual baby that was saved from the ultrasound machine. So I'm so, so grateful for the work that you have been doing and are currently doing with those ultrasound placements in the Psalm 139 project. You mentioned um, the Watsons. Who are some of the other people um, and partners and organizations involved with Psalm 139? So because Psalm 139 serves pregnancy health clinics or pregnancy resource clinics, um, there's we have a variety of different partners. But just a couple to mention here, Um, We just recently partnered with CareNet to place a machine uh, at Treasure Coast. Um, They have been uh, an amazing partner, and this is not the first time that we worked with them, Um, that network of centers. We also, uh, just a couple of months ago, placed a machine with a center in Raleigh through Human Coalition. Uh, We've also been working with Heartbeat on some current placements. Uh, Heartbeat, again, Heartbeat, CareNet, Human Coalition, Save the Storks, ICU Mobile. These are some incredible networks. They are doing amazing work, life-affirming work in organizations. Then we've also done a good bit of work with Lifeline Children's Services. Lifeline is absolutely incredible. Herbie leads Lifeline. Uh, Herbie Newell, he's doing some incredible work over there, both domestically and internationally. And Lifeline focuses on adoption. And we want to be sure that we talk in terms of, we don't just want to save the life of the baby. 
we do want to save the life of the baby. That's extremely important to us. But we also care about the baby post-birth. It's why adoption is so important. It's why post-birth services are so important. It's why we want to wrap around that mom and just say, we don't just care about saving the life of your child. We care deeply about you. We care deeply about your baby after it's born. And we want to ensure that you have the necessary resources around you that can help support you as you continue to walk this path. You know, Elizabeth, as you talk about that uh, holistic approach uh, and the ways that our pro-life ethic colors uh, the kind of partners that we engage with, like Lifeline, who also see uh, that value of serving the whole person involved in uh, in these stories. When you think about what it means to be pro-life in that kind of way that you're touching on right now, I'm curious, what what's a story that resonates with you or, you know, maybe even something that you've seen and experienced firsthand uh, in your work here at ERLC that has caused you to be passionate and really focused and, and have that kind of determination to say, you know, this isn't just about the issue of abortion. That is the, you know, that is the like foundation for our pro-life work. But I'm curious if you have a story that uh, that you'd want to share uh, that particularly resonates with you. I do. Um, and I'm going to pray. I don't get emotional. I'm sure there, telling. Are, I'm sure there are many. <laughs> there uh, are many stories. But, <laughs> but one story in particular had such a profound impact on my life. So a personal friend who I've gotten to know over the last several years through the event work that I do is... Eric Brown. He's married to Ruth Brown, and they're an incredible family. I heard about Eric uh, and Ruth um, through some other mutual friends, and he shot an event. He does incredible photography work, so here's just a quick plug for him. If anybody needs an amazing photographer, Eric Brown uh, is your guy. But Eric uh, was doing some work for me on a different project, and I got to hear Um, the story about his daughter, Pearl. And so we've gotten to know their family over uh, the last several years. And we featured their story at Evangelicals for Life a couple of years ago. Um, And so just to give you some information early on, so Ruth and Eric went to their 20-week scan to discover that their baby's gender, just like every expectant parent does. Like, here you are, you're so excited, you're about to hear, are you having a boy or a girl? Speaking as a mother myself, no one ever would anticipate, no one ever can prepare you for the news that there is something significantly wrong with your baby. And here you are, which you think is going to be like one of the most joyous days. You're celebrating the life of your child, um, whether it's a boy or girl, and you're about to tell everybody. So you're thinking gender reveal. And then here they come to this appointment and they discover um, that Pearl, uh, which is their, at the time, their preborn baby, um, has a diagnosis of severe disabilities. They were told that their that Pearl's chances of even making it to term were small. And then in that very same appointment, they were asked if they wanted to just go uh, walk across the hall and set up their termination of pregnancy. And as you can imagine, if you hear their story in person, I mean, it is so powerful. It has shaped me significantly. 
and super emotional because of all that they've gone through. And Eric and, and Ruth decided absolutely not. Instead, they chose to protect and value her life, upholding her dignity as one being made in the image of God. Pearl was born alive, and they had the honor of having her physically as part of their family for several years. And what's incredible is the doctors also told Eric and Ruth, if you end up having Pearl, like she she will have no quality of life, and it's likely that she won't survive outside the womb because of what the womb was providing for her is life-giving. And they ended up choosing life, and then... Pearl ended up living for several years. So when they came to Evangelicals for Life to share their story of Pearl, Pearl is still with us on this earth. And then a little more than a year later, we asked Ruth and Eric if they would consider doing the second part of the story. And in April of 2018, Pearl went home to be with her Savior, Jesus. And we have asked Eric and Ruth this last year, can we share the story of Pearl and and what her life meant? So the ERLC was able to tell this beautiful story through a short documentary uh, where viewers can hear from the Browns about their journey of pain, suffering, and discovering joy in the midst of trials. For me personally, I've been encouraged and challenged by the family's faith as they faithfully love their daughter. Pearl and cared for her each day. They had the privilege of having her with them and honored her life, even in her death. I'm personally incredibly grateful to count them as friends and to know them and to know Pearl's story. So it's just really deeply affected me, obviously. I'm sorry, I wasn't expecting to feel so emotional, but it's the first time I've talked about this story publicly since her passing. And it's, it just really has impacted me. So thanks for allowing me to share. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't talk about Pearl's story, uh, having been in the room when uh, Eric first shared, as you put it, the, the first half of, of uh, the Brown family story with their daughter at EFL uh, a couple of years back. And there was not a dry eye in the room then, uh, nor since uh, any room that that has been viewed. And we'll link to that in the show notes. And I would really encourage folks to go listen to uh, a father's love uh, for his daughter. Uh, and you mentioned he's a photographer. Uh, the photos that he shares of their family loving on that that little girl are just amazing. Uh, and then we also have the second part of that story, as you mentioned, which is a documentary uh, about their family. And I'll, uh, I'll link to that in the show notes as well. Elizabeth, thanks for sharing that. Thanks so much. You know, I, I think when I think about that, um, when I think about Pearl's story, it's not a story that has anything to do with public policy. It has to do with shape, reshaping and reforming our consciences. In some ways, embracing the the difficulty that is created by the fall. And I think, you know, as you know, we we know that that God doesn't God God intends even that for our good. Um, in the way that. Um, you know, Pearl's story has has touched so many people's uh, lives. God can do anything with brokenness, and and so you know we're we're now sort of forty eight years into this conscience deforming 
uh, reality that we we find ourselves in 48 years um, after uh, the Supreme Court handed down Roe v. Wade and and dramatically changed uh, the legal landscape for for abortion. But you know, as we've just been talking about the you know the environment that we all grow up in, you know, the types of choices that um, are that should be unthinkable, but that are uh, available to us. And so, you know, last last week we we announced uh, an amazing uh, new initiative for the next couple of years. Tell us tell us about that new initiative. Well, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, we've been working on details for the next three years coming up to row fifty, and we believe that it's important to mobilize our work around baby saving. Our audience is sort of regularly asking us what they can do to stand for life. And the Psalm 139 project allows us to place life-saving ultrasound technology in pregnancy health clinics at no cost to the clinic, which we talked about earlier. We're also able to provide training, which we discussed earlier as well, at no cost to the center or very little cost um, to them. And as we began dreaming about expanding this initiative and what the Lord would have us do, we decided we wanted to take on what we've been referring to as a legacy of life. How do we work towards creating a legacy of life? And we thought one of the ways on this road to road 50 and beyond that we can do that is through, is through mobilizing around baby saving and baby rescue through the Psalm 139 project. So we laid out a very aggressive plan to place 50 ultrasound machines in 50 pregnancy health clinics across the country by row 50. So by January of 2023, and then we determined that the first six months of this year, we wanted to pray and ask the Lord to help us place 10 machines in the first six months of 2021. And we feel that is just really important, especially with what's happening uh, with an incoming new administration, the assault on the pre-born. So we put forward this very aggressive initiative, and I'm just blown away by what the Lord has done. Um, He has brought along partners to come alongside us to partner in this work. He's brought a donor who has a passion to see babies saved. And that donor is helping us to accomplish uh, what we've been talking about as this legacy of life. So we have placed three machines already, and we have two more that are currently in process that may be placed uh, in the next 30 days. And we have dozens of others on the list for evaluation. So let me just take a second. If if you are a pastor or a church leader or a church member and you're a part of a church that supports pregnancy resource clinic and that pregnancy resource clinic has a need for this life-saving technology, we would invite you to submit that need to the Psalm 139 project to be considered for this incredible grant opportunity. Um, we depend on those who are listening to bring about those referrals for us. So we would love if you would send that to us. So I just did a plug there for <laughs> please no, do great. some more referrals, but but we would really appreciate it's it. It's great. That's great. <clears throat> just- no, it's and and honestly, it's it's one of the reasons why I wanted you have wanted to have you on this podcast, Elizabeth, was to talk about how you know our our work in the pro life space is not just public policy it's not just um 
you know, the, the type of work that we do in DC, or it's not even just, you know, voter guides or knocking on doors. I mean, as we seek to change the, the policy environment that we're operating in on some level, we have to accept it for what it is and do the best we can within it. And so, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I am so proud of, uh, the work that you guys do. I love talking to people about it. Um, and so, Thanks for sharing all that, E.G. Travis, thanks so much for just talking about um, the policy piece and these other aspects of our work. I definitely think that we depend on each other for the work that we're doing. We need policy. We need advocacy work. It's absolutely critical and essential to the work that we're doing at, at the ERLC as we stand for life. Um, because the way in which you make changes is through our uh, laws So we could definitely not do the work without you. We also want to be a resource for the church. We want to help equip the church. So that's why we have been working tirelessly for the last several months on a curriculum, which is a part of our content strategy to help resource the church. Um, And it's a multi-series curriculum that will uh, go, you know, be a part of this uh, longer discipleship tool that we're using Um, We also are going to have our events still that focus on our life initiatives and then mobilizing around Psalm 139. And we have some really incredible things coming that I cannot wait to talk about publicly on our road to Row 50 and beyond. And it's some much broader initiatives that we haven't rolled out yet. And so this is a sneak peek for everyone listening about what's to come in the next several months. And I'm just incredibly grateful to be a part of our team at the ERLC and the work that we get to do together um, as we work to advocate for all of life. So Elizabeth, you have had a busy past year and you have a lot going on this year, but there is something very special happening um, this week. Can you tell us about what's happening this Thursday? Yes, thanks so much for asking about that. So as a part of um, the March for Life time every year, we host an Evangelicals for Life event. And of course, this year, it's not possible or safe uh, for people to come in person. So we've decided that we still think that it's very important that we have our annual event called Evangelicals for Life. It's going to be virtual this year. And so Thursday at 12 p.m. Central, We will host our sixth annual Evangelicals for Life event. Uh, This is the first time in six years that we've not been able to gather in person for EFL or for the March, but we're still excited to be able to talk about life, even if we only do it in a virtual environment this year. So as part of Thursday's event, we have some really great talks scheduled. Dr. Moore is going to be giving our keynote address, Travis, our very own, and Chelsea right here. Uh, We'll be joined by some of our friends at Alliance Defending Freedom and Americans United for Life for a panel to discuss our pro-life policy work. And then you're also going to hear from our good friends, Lauren McAfee and Benjamin Watson, who are partners with us uh, on our pro-life work here at the ERLC. So I encourage everybody to join us. It's free, no cost to join whatsoever. And you can find the details at ERLC.com. Well, Elizabeth, thank you again for joining us on your uh, on your maiden voyage podcasting uh, experience. Uh, you did I great. hope we I hope our yeah, I hope our questions weren't too hard. They were um, awesome. But good, good. Uh, well, 
you know, I so I so appreciate all that you shared. I, I am particularly more motivated today than I was at the start of this show because of Pearl Brown's story, uh, among others. So I appreciate you reminding us of that and reminding our listeners of that, why this all matters. So mm-hmm. uh, EG, wish you uh, all the best and final preparations uh, for this uh, online event, first of its kind here in in this COVID season, uh, but I'm excited to see the responses. People all over the country and probably world join us for EFL on Thursday. Looking forward to it. And thanks again for joining us here on Capital Conversations. Thanks so much. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C. As a reminder, you can check out the articles we referenced and our 2021 public policy agenda and sign up for Evangelicals for Life at ERLC.com. If you enjoyed today's show, send a link to this podcast to a friend or family member in your community. Be sure to subscribe to Capital Conversations so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a rating and review to help others find our show. Resources from today's episode, including the Bernie memes, are available in the show notes and at yearlc.com. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we look forward to being back together with you next week. <laughs>